I'm hoping that since we are in the midst of Lent already, that you've begun to think of disciplines, sacrifices, practices that might help you to pursue God during Lent. I'm hopeful that you are interested in embracing, in cooperating with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, that he may shape your heart, shape your character more nearly into the character of Jesus Christ. But I must issue one last caution when it comes to the practices of fasting and self-denial, etc. Self-denial, the disciplines we take on, must never come at the expense of others. I'm going to read in a moment from Isaiah 58. Uh, this passage of Scripture is written at a time in Israel's history after they've been returned from exile, and the people are genuinely pursuing God. But God instructs the prophet to address some issues with the people, and particularly a question they're asking. Jerusalem is experiencing difficulty. The people are seeking God and fasting. Things are not turning out the way they expect or desire, or desire. And so this is what Israel's asking. They're pursuing God. They're seeking him. They're worshiping him. But they're saying this. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why do we humble ourselves and you do not notice? It's an interesting question. God doesn't debate in this passage we're about to read whether or not the people are genuinely seeking him or not. He doesn't attempt to say that their worship isn't heartfelt. However, he has some objections, and so he instructs Isaiah to speak. This is Isaiah 58. Shout out, do not hold back. God's saying to us, Isaiah, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. This is the quotation of the people. Why do we fast but do not see? Why humble ourselves but you do not notice? God responds, look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed grow free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? I think the conflict in the passage is easy to identify. Israel's seeking God, but seeking him with self-interest. They want God for what he can do for them. I guess at some level we all do that, right? Uh, God doesn't tell us we should be completely disinterested in ourselves, right? I mean, we're told to love our neighbor as we love ourselves in the same way that we love ourselves, right? There's, there's a balance that's supposed to be there. But Israel's forgotten the neighbor altogether. They only want God for what he can do for them. And in fact, you get the sense 
that they think that by worshiping and fasting, they are obligating God to answer their prayers and give them the things that they want. It's like I can get God into a box and he can perform for me if I would just worship and fast him in the ways that he's commanded. And you can see how messy that can get when it comes to motives. When we worship God to get what we want, we're on shaky ground. Especially when, if you took a step back and looked at the full expression of your life, you're ignoring many of God's other commands, principles, and purposes. You know, we walk into this time, this time of Lent, a time of introspection and fasting and self-discipline, and, and often our motivation is to become a better follower of Christ or, or to secure for ourselves the answers to hard questions or, or to practice disciplines that we feel might make us feel better about ourselves or, or to meet some sort of spiritual obligation we have in our mind. But can you, can you hear how much self is in those expressions? It's about me. It's about mine. It's about my spirituality. It's about my goals. It's about my personal holiness. But spiritual formation is, in fact, always a community affair. Always. It's not about self. It's about us. It's about we. It's about ours as a community. The process of growing in Christ happens in the context of community. The expression of our life in Christ is validated in community. The royal law of love requires us to care for one another in the body of Christ and to care for those outside the body of Christ as well. The New Testament principle of this royal law of love, has its foundation in the Old Testament, and this is one of the places that we see it. What does God require for true worship? This is verse 6 again. Is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them, and to not hide yourself? When we fail to do these things, it's a failure of love. We will never grow spiritually, I think in any other way as well, if our expression of love is inadequate. Loving well is an indication of spiritual health and vitality. The children of light love others well. They do no violence either by attack or by withdrawal. One of the things that we've talked about frequently in these last several weeks is, is the need we have for one another, especially within the body of Christ. We need each other to get a true picture of who we actually are. We need the support and encouragement that we give to one another. We need opportunities to serve one another so that we don't become completely self-centered and self-absorbed. We need the experience of learning to live together so that Christ can form us by the frustrations and difficulties that are a normal part of the life of living together. You understand that, right? I mean, every relationship in your life isn't perfectly calm and peaceful, right? 
There are some folks who rub you the wrong way. There are some folks you rub the wrong way. The priorities and principles of the kingdom tell us that's good and it's through that abrasiveness at times that the Holy Spirit comes, speaks, and helps take the rough edges off us. It's in that crucible of frustration at times, which happens frequently in the body of Christ, that we are formed. And so if we run away from that every time we have any friction or frustration, we're removing from God the opportunity to shape us. And so we have to just expect there's going to be some frustration, there's going to be some friction, there's going to be some difficulty from time to time. But spiritual growth was never meant to happen in a vacuum, as if the only beneficiary of the growth is you or me. Because spiritual growth isn't just us, it's a community fair. The goal of growth isn't just that as individuals we get better, the goal is that as a community, we get better. And when I say better, I mean more accurately reflecting the image of Jesus Christ to others. Your perfection isn't the primary goal here. The primary goal is our ability to carry out the mission of God, which is to love those he has created. That's the primary goal, that together as a community, we can do that with integrity. You will fit within the mission when you have been transformed to the place where you can love well within the context of this fellowship and in the context of your relationships in the world around you. If we can't love well, candidly, we're not much used to God. If you can't love well, what does Matthew say? If, if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's really not good for much than to put on the pathway and keep you from slipping. I mean, it's, it's not worth hanging on to if it can't achieve its primary goal. So the question is, how do we become that kind of loving community? How do we get there? Well, Dallas Willard, as you might imagine, has a word to say about that. He says, we must completely stop injuring one another. There's some strong words. Completely stop injuring one another. Seems simple. Really? We are, it seems, a pretty violent people. We see violence on television all the time. Our stories are often stories of violence. We're the victims of violence. So I'm not sure it's all that surprising that we begin to incorporate violent ways. We've been trained to it by what we watch and experience. It's amazing to me. I was watching a video, that, uh, some videotapes that were taken of my children when they were very young at a birthday party. And so there were 10 little boys in the room and we're playing floor hockey. And it's interesting to me that we take a group picture and every one of them picks up the stick and holds it as a gun. I'm thinking, how did that happen? I mean, we were playing floor hockey, but all of a sudden, somehow the violence is so all, all present that, that we just sort of suck it up somehow. Why is it that we so easily then attack one another? You say, Pastor, surely you're not talking about church people. I don't know. I mean, why are so many Christians so mean? 
social media proves I'm telling the truth, right? Right? Why are so many Christians so mean? Why, why is it many of us just can't, from, can't, stop, can't keep ourselves from being mean? I mean, mean-spirited mean spirited Christian ought to be an oxymoron. I mean, it, it shouldn't be possible. It should not be possible. Our guiding principle is to love. Love for God, love expressed toward our neighbor. This should define us, not just to our neighbor who agrees with us, but to our neighbor. Not just the neighbor that we like. In fact, if you take those chapters in Matthew seriously, not even the neighbors who are our friends, but the ones who are our enemies, right? Love extends, according to the words of Jesus, to our enemies. So why so many mean Christians? I think Christians should be the most approachable, gentle, meek people on the planet. We should not constitute a threat to others. The idea that we would attack one another should be ludicrous, but it happens in every church regularly because we really haven't paid all that much attention to how we actually treat one another. We just attack when we feel threatened. We attack verbally when we feel mistreated or manipulated. We often feel like we have to defend our opinions. So in order to defend our right thinking, we attack those whose opinions are different. There have been many attacks made in places like this across the years. Sometimes even, attacks don't look on the surface like they are attacks. Let me give you some examples. Seduction is an attack. The attempt to get from someone else what I want, when I know that the process will injure the other or is not in the best interest of the other, that is an attack. The attempt to defraud someone of their possessions or wealth, to convince them to buy what they don't need to their detriment, that's an attack. The subtle slander or gossip the casting doubt on the character of others, these are attacks. Until we intentionally work to remove attack from our lives, spiritual growth, fasting, worship, they don't mean anything. We're playing at wanting to be like Christ. We're seeking growth for personal gain. There's another form of lovelessness that is also an attack, though it is passive. You can attack by assault, but you can also attack by withdrawal. Remember, our obligation is to love, to pursue the best interest of others. When we withdraw from others, when we, when we step back, when we withhold the love that others ought to receive from us, that is due to them from us. When we withhold the encouragement and the support they have a right to expect from their brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a passive attack. Attack by withdrawal is so common today that it's epidemic. If people don't get their own way, they vacate the relationship. If they, if they disagree, they leave. If for any one of 30 reasons, people just step back. And I'm curious how withdrawal is going to work in heaven. 
you know, I don't like the folks in this part of heaven. I think I'll withdraw over to this you know, new residence on Harp Street. Maybe, maybe that will be a more, I won't, have to, I won't have to deal with people who um, have a different political opinion than I have or are registered for the wrong party or don't support my vision of People like that won't have enough heaven in them in order to be comfortable in heaven to begin with. When people attack by withdrawal, whether that means by simply creating distance to avoid the responsibility to love, or to just actually remove themselves completely from your life, they rarely see what they're doing to themselves or others. Withdrawal is one of the surest ways there is to create an isolating bubble for yourself to live in. And remember, spiritual growth is a community matter. And so I have to do the opposite of withdrawal. I've got to step in. I've got to embrace the community. I've got to recognize it's going to get mucky and messy. and ugh. But that's where the growth occurs. That's where the Holy Spirit will do his work. It's impossible for God, for God to transform us through any relationship that's difficult if we constantly are running away from every difficulty we encounter. There's another problem with withdrawal, and it's simply this. When we attack by withdrawal, even if we're not consciously aware that it's an attack, the love of God ceases to flow through us, and once again, we are completely Useless to God. He wants to love others through you. And when you withhold that love, what's the point? We must consciously and conscientiously work to remove all forms of attack and withdrawal from our lives. I recognize that that was a mouthful. I'm listening to myself here. I wish I could tell you that you know, there are no occasions where I practice attack or withhold. If I told you that, that would be lying. This is an area of introspection for me. Uh, it is such an ingrained habit to be defensive, to withdraw from difficulty. But can you see that if we're really going to embrace this royal law of love, it's going to have to mean the expression of love in community, and that we're going to have to take this seriously. I'm going to have to run the risk of trusting some folks in my community. I mean, if spiritual formation can only happen in the community, if you can only love in the community, if you can only grow in the community, if you need the community to help you grow, then you're going to have to trust some folks. I'm not saying that every issue of spiritual formation you wear on your sleeve and you tell every person in the congregation. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are some you must trust. And you must gather some folks to you to help you through this process. And you can't run away from difficulty and you've got to gather some friends who will tell you the truth about yourself and help you know 
when you're attacking and withdrawing or anything else that is sub-Christian. We have to do the work of correcting the effects of past attacks and past withdrawals if we're going to move forward in relationship. This is a tough passage. This is tough. It's been eating at me all week. This is a high standard to become peaceful and gracious and meek and merciful and consistently loving in all of my relationships. But the part I love is the promise that follows if we will. If we will take this seriously, if we will submit ourselves to God for his transforming work, and if we will take seriously becoming the people of the kingdom that he desires us to be, if we will really embrace this idea of becoming more and more Christ-like, what, what's the promise here? This is what it says in verse 8 and following. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. The ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach. I love that. Wouldn't you love this is what I want. I want a t-shirt that says repair of the breach on it. And I want it to be true of me. You can put that on my tombstone if you like. That's a lofty enough thing. Can you imagine if we were a people so gracious that we didn't constitute a threat to anyone, that people could see the love of Christ in us, and the result of that, what's the promise? You will build up the foundations of future generations. You can change the future if you will actually be this kind of a person. If you will be this kind of a person in a community of people like this, whose objective is to not attack, not to withdraw, but to consistently love others and to demonstrate that in all of our relationships. I, I'm hoping that one of you guys is gonna get me that t-shirt. Repairer of the breach. But the sad part of it is, I suspect that anything less than that, anything less than that, no matter what the accomplishments of your life are, anything less than becoming a person of love will have no impact at all. the love of God cannot flow through us. We're of no use to him. Our fasting, our self-discipline is meaningless if it is not the means to becoming those kinds of people.
Don't you long to be a part of, commu- of a community like that? Folks who just love, who engage, who wrestle with you, who don't judge. We're going to receive the communion meal together. Part of the symbolism of the communion meal is that we are one at one table as one body serving one Lord. It's an expression of the unity of the body of Christ. And it's my prayer that we will consistently, conscientiously, consciously become more and more like the one who gave himself for us. Would those, who, would those who are going to help me serve communion come at this time? The Church of the Nazarene, we practice an open communion, which means anyone who's desiring to follow Jesus is welcome to participate. At the appropriate time of invitation, I would invite you to stand, not yet, at the appropriate time of invitation, and exit the pews by the outside aisles Come forward and receive the juice and the bread and then take it back to your seats and we will uh, eat the meal together. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, gracious God, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. You revealed yourself through your people Israel and in the fullness of time you sent your son, Jesus, who took on flesh and became one of us. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave his life for us according to the plan of salvation. You raised him from the dead and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. He is the king of the kingdom of God, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is our alpha and omega, our provider, our healer, our hope and our light. He is the bread of life, the great shepherd, our brother, and he is worthy of our praise. And so we rejoice with all your people of every time and place and with angels and archangels to proclaim the glory of your name. Worthy is the lamb who was slain Holy, holy is he. Sing a new song to him who sits on heaven's mercy seat. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Jesus is our King. He has invited us into his kingdom. He will come again to receive us into the place he is preparing for all of his children. These things we call to mind 
as we take this spiritual food. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this juice, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world, redeemed by Christ's blood. May your spirit sanctify us that we might be one, united in mission, and committed to loving God and neighbor with all that we are. Amen. I'd invite you to stand and move to the exterior aisles and come and receive the gifts. of Christ, the bread of heaven. Let us receive it with thanksgiving. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, may it preserve you blameless to everlasting life. Amen. Jesus, we are grateful for your sacrifice for us. We're amazed at the magnificent of this display of your love for us. And we ask for your help that we might love one another well. For we pray this in your name. Amen. Before I pronounce the benediction, I would encourage you to proclaim a fast at some time this week as we prepare for our spiritual deepening services that start a week from today. Uh, we anticipate next Sunday to be one of those high holy days where we focus on uh, hearing the word of Christ in our hearts. And so I would invite you to prepare for that. I look forward to seeing you all again at four. And now may the grace of God and the peace of Christ guard your hearts that we may be exactly what he dreamed we could be when he created us. To his glory, amen.